0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of New Books Network Podcast. My name is Lee Pierce, they and she pronouns. I am your hostess with the most of the channel in Media and Communications and Language. And today I'm thrilled to welcome one of my siblings over at the Op Ed Project, another alum, Carol Anderson. Dr. Carol Anderson, whose book The Second Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America has just come out from Bloomsbury Press. Dr. Anderson is here today to discuss this absolutely crucial work of American history. I want to repeat that this is a book about American history. I'm talking you need this right on the shelves next to any James Madison biography or a uh, history of the Constitution. It needs to be right there along with it. So in The Second, um, Dr. Anderson, who is a historian, and an award-winning best-selling author of previous books, including White Rage, powerfully illuminates the history and impact of the Second Amendment, how it was designed, and how it has consistently been constructed to keep African Americans powerless and vulnerable. Again, it's not a pro-gun or an anti-gun book. It's actually very little about guns per se. The lens is, in fact, directed at the citizenship rights and human rights of African Americans. And Dr. Anderson shows the way in which American history all the way to the 21st century, right right up to our doorstep right now, regardless of the laws, court decisions, changing political environment, the Second Amendment has consistently meant this, that the second a Black person exercises their right to self-defense, the second they pick up a gun to protect themselves, or the second that they don't, right, their life, as surely as Philando Castile's, Tamir Rice's, Alton Sterling's, may be snatched away in that single fatal second. So with that, I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Anderson um, this incredibly challenging and important and powerful book today to New Books Network. Carol, are you there? Yes, I am. So glad to be here. Yeah, it's so thank you for joining us. I mean, this is you've been writing books like crazy, doing such important work. So tell us more you know, about yourself, about what brought you to write the book. So this book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally
2: Unequal America, is part of what I call my Bloomsbury Trilogy, um, where I'm really examining the fractured citizenship of African-Americans. And prior to, I looked at a broader scope with white, white rage. And then with one person, no vote, I had zoned in on the, 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 the battle for voting rights for African Americans and the massive disfranchisement and voter suppression that they face. And now with this one, I'm looking at the Second Amendment, the one that gets this has this hallowed ground kind of feel in our current discourse, um, the thing that shall not be touched um, and seeing the way that the second amendment, which is seen as foundational for citizenship, American citizenship is in fact fractured when it comes to African-Americans. Um, and what got me on this was the killing of Philando Castillo in mm-hmm. Minnesota. Here was a black man who was pulled over by the police um, and he, the police asked the policeman asked for his ID. Castile, following NRA guidelines, said, "Yes, officer, and I just want you to know that I have a licensed gun with me. I am, I am have a permit to carry this gun. I am now reaching for my license, and the police officer started shooting and killed him. And in that moment, I thought, wow this man is killed for owning a licensed weapon. Mm. And here is where you expect to have the NRA, the protector of the second amendment, just jumping in full force going, what? But instead it was like virtual silence. They had to be pushed into making a non-statement statement statement, um, that we believe everybody should have the right, regardless of race and creed, And it was like, what? Um, the, this is the same organization that after Ruby Ridge, the uprising at Ruby Ridge, where federal officers were killed and federal officers shot back. Um, and at Waco, where Wayne Lapierre um, labeled federal officers jackbooted thugs. So we get Booted thugs for federal officers shooting back when they have, you know, when some of their fellow officers have been killed. And we get virtual silence when a black man is gunned down um, because he has a license to carry weapon. Mm -hmm. And, and, and journalists were asking, do black people have second amendment rights? And that's what got me on this hunt to find out, do black folks have second amendment rights? And I started going back and back and back, and I ended up in the 17th century um, in the era of slavery in the United States. And I saw how fearful white colonists were of black people as these laws keep coming up talking about, we've got to disarm them, we've got to make sure they don't have weapons. Um, the fear of retribution, the fear of revolts and uprisings, um, and this casting of Black people as monstrous, as, as violent, as um, criminal. And those, those depictions then provided justification for um, the, the intense laws raining down, not only on the enslaved, but also on free Blacks. And that fear of of retribution, that fear of Black people then courses through um, the founding of this nation. We see it with the battles um, in the war for independence where initially there was a ban on Black people becoming part of the army. And then as the British keep having successes. Uh, mm. there was, and there weren't enough white men do, willing to fight. Then it was like, okay, we got to do something. And so you started seeing the Northern colonies granting emancipation to their enslaved men who were willing to fight for the rebels, willing to fight for the patriots. But you, as the war is going, as the, the British turn south, because of what they call the soft underbelly of the revolt. As the British turned south and said, this is how we're going to take them out. You had Georgia just collapse. George Washington sends in his emissary, John Lawrence, to the South Carolina government saying, look, you don't have enough white men under arms who can take on the British. The way that we have to stop them is you have to to arm the enslaved. You must arm the enslaved. That's the bulk of your population. That's what you must do if we're going to have a chance at this thing. And the South Carolina government looked at him and said, no, absolutely not. They were horrified, horrified at the idea of of arming Black people, at the idea of arming the enslaved. They were willing to deal with whatever the British had to give them, including um, capitulating as traitors, really <laughs> um, <laughs> really um, th- rather than arm the enslaved, and you had nathaniel green Gen- General Nathaniel Green going, "Look, you must do this. you don't have enough white men. The bulk of your population, where your strength is or, or, or your strength is with the enslaved, and South Carolina said no." In that, that moment, you see where the fear of blackness, the fear of black people is more powerful than the fear of dealing with the retribution of the king and more powerful than the desire to have a United States of America. That's part of one of the, the through lines that I started finding in this book. As you know, we won. <laughs> Um, yay! <laughs> then we get the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation really aren't working. They really aren't working. By 1787, it's really clear: this thing is not functioning. You have states that are printing their own currency, they have set up tariffs against each other. Um, they, they're doing their own individual foreign policies. You know, just it's not working. And so a group came together um, ostensibly to strengthen the Articles of Confederation. But what James Madison, um, who was part of that group, realized was that there was no strengthening of the Articles of Confederation. And so they led the charge in actually drafting the Constitution of the United States. In this drafting of the Constitution, one of the things that becomes clear is that the South is there to strengthen slavery, to get its best deal. And they're willing to hold the United States of America hostage to do so. And this is how we get the the three-fifths clause that gives them more representation than um, their population actually warrants because they're treating the enslaved generally as property. But here, for the sake of representation in Congress, All of a sudden, they become three-fifths of a human being to be counted for representation. It's how you get the the extension of the Atlantic slave trade for 20 additional years. And it's how you get the Fugitive Slave Clause. And that becomes part of the ongoing mechanism that gets the South to sign off on the, the Constitution, to sign off on this United States of America. Well, during the ratification convention, particularly, you know, it looked like ratification was going along smoothly, and then it hit a hiccup, a big bump. Uh, New Hampshire was like, mm, "I'm not quite so sure about this thing," um, and Virginia, Virginia was balking big. The balking in Virginia dealt with the militia. There was a clause in a series of clauses in the U.S. Constitution that had put the 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 arming and the training of the militia under federal control. What Virginia saw, Patrick Henry and and George Mason, the anti-federalists in Virginia, what they saw was that that put control of their mechanism for quelling slave revolts, for keeping the enslaved under control. That put that under the federal uh, banner, and that meant that left them vulnerable they um patrick henry was like the north detest slavery george mason was we will be left defenseless that sense that they could not trust if there was a massive slave revolt they could not trust that the federal government would help send in militia to help quell that revolt and and part of that was they were thinking about how governor morris out of New York had said, "Well, isn't it? I mean, isn't it morally wrong to ask those in the North to who have been fighting for freedom to go and and shut down a revolt for those who want freedom?" Um, and so, what they heard was vulnerable. We will be left vulnerable, mm-hmm. and, and the ratification was hanging in the balance with that. And James Madison is listening and he's pushing back. He's like, you're already protected. You've got the three-fifths clause. You've got the the Atlantic slave trade for 20 more years. You've got the fugitive slave clause. Patrick Henry was, it's not enough. And that push was for a new uh, constitutional convention. And the push was to add a bill of rights to that existing constitution. Virginia eventually ratified um, the Constitution, but with a series of amendments, including an amendment for the right to a well-regulated militia. What Mm. Madison understood, yes, yes, what Madison understood. There it is, and there it starts. (laughs) Yes, right? Uh, Was that as he was going into that first Congress, he had to have a, to draft a Bill of Rights that could be part of the Constitution in order to quell the dissent that was happening among the states, and particularly among the anti-federalists who had the momentum to call for a new constitutional convention. And the way that you quell that dissent was a Bill of Rights. And in that Bill of Rights, you get this one that is about a well-regulated militia necessary for the security of the state um, and the the right to bear arms. That was the payoff. This militia that is absolutely necessary to to contain um, slave revolts, uprisings, because part of the narrative that we get now is that the militia was absolutely essential for for fighting off a foreign invasion and and protecting against the tyranny of governments. Except the militia was not effective during the war for independence. Hmm. Uh, George Washington was just like my kingdom for a real army. (laughs) Um, it it, It was so bad. There were times when they wouldn't show up. There were times when they would take off running. Um, there were times when they're just like, peace out. Um, and, and, and you had Governor Morris saying to rely upon the militia against a foreign invasion is like relying upon a broken reed. So they knew that the militia was not effective against a professional army. They knew that. They also had to deal with Shays' Rebellion, which was an uprising that happened in 1787 right before the Constitutional Convention. And this was a group of men, a, a militia, that had formed to take on, um, to battle against taxation by the Massachusetts government and the seizure of land for nonpayment of those taxes. And so you had this, this this group of men, led by Daniel Shays, um, storming courthouses, getting ready to take over the armory in Springfield, Massachusetts. And they, the, the government couldn't get militia to take on Shays' rebellion. They could not get enough men to do so. In fact, there were members of the militia who were joining Shays' rebellion. And it took Boston merchants basically having to hire mercenaries to take on uh, Shays' Rebellion and quell the revolt. And so that sense that they were there to uphold the law, that also didn't hold water. What that militia could do and had done was to clamp down hard on, on uprisings of the enslaved and so you think about the Stono Rebellion in 1739 in South Carolina, where 20 enslaved uh, laborers, men, took over. Uh, um, they had been out on a, a road, a work gang building roads, and they started basically plotting out and scouting how many men, where are the weapons, because what they were trying to do was to get free. And freedom was in Spanish Florida. And so on a Sunday, they overtook the two guards at the at the where the, the guns were stored, got those weapons, and they started in route to Florida taking out white people, just killing them. And they were and, and and what stopped them was that South Carolina had a law that all white men had to be armed. So on that Sunday, the white men had their guns in church. And when the alarm went off, the white men came out of church and they started hunting down um the members of the Stono Rebellion. Sixty people were killed, um, forty, forty enslaved people and and twenty whites. It was the most uh it was the largest uprising in 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 North American history. Stono led to the 1740 Negro Act, uh, which was the massive slave code in South Carolina. It is where African descended people were defined as absolute slaves, now and for those who have not yet been born. It was also where the disarmament, the, the, the enslaved cannot have access to weapons unless under the guidance and approval of whites mm. and where literacy was banned.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the one I had been familiar with before reading the book. So it was, it was not surprising to learn that literacy. And like they're both forms of, wep- of weapons and tools, right? So it makes sense that you would ban them all simultaneously. Exactly. This was, this was like, this is how they're going to get free. So we got to stop. Right. That. That's
2: precisely right. Yeah. We've got to stop that. And so the militia held a key role in enslaved in society, a key role in propping up slavery. Um, as an institution because it was that militarization of whites that prevented the uprisings, that, that, that clamped down on them when they occurred. And that was what, what Virginia, what the anti-federalists wanted, particularly those in the South, that's what they wanted. They wanted protection. They wanted to not be left what they called defenseless. That's what the Second Amendment is about. So you think about it. Here in this Bill of Rights, where the the freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, uh, the right not to be illegally searched and seized, the right not to have cruel and unusual punishment, um, the, 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 the right to not have to testify against yourself. Amongst these incredible rights, we get this outlier about a militia and arms, because that outlier is like the three-fifths clause. It is designed to deny the humanity of black people. So, knowing how the power of anti-blackness is infused in this Second Amendment, then led me to to look at. The ways that the right to bear arms, the right to self-defense, and the right to a well-regulated militia play out for African-Americans over time. And and that's what I did in this book.
1: You know, that word militia, as a rhetorician, That word militia in the Second Amendment has always been like, that's a really specific word. And people always sort of brush it off. It's like, oh, that's just what they meant by like armies. And you're sitting there like, I don't think that's true. If you think about how careful they were with the writing of this document, I I mean, you wouldn't say militia if you meant armies, you'd say armies. And then the other thing you say uh, is, um, and you say this at the end of the introduction, but obviously it's a theme that runs throughout the book, is really that discussion of the Second Amendment has been so codified by the NRA in this issue of, well, people's rights. And then you ask, well, what, like the right to do what and whose rights? uh, You say it's clear that the debate is much bigger than this, like, rights equality issue, because fundamentally the second amendment is so structurally flawed and quite literally written for black exclusion debasement that unlike every other amendment, like you say, it's not reformable in a, in a lot of ways, right? It can't be, and this is an important point about the whole book, things that are written exclusively as anti-black violence cannot, that you can't just then add to those amendments and change language and because they're too structurally embedded in anti-black racism to just be an additive process. And I, so I think this all pulled together a lot of great themes for me. And I really appreciate the history because it's very well done. I mean, it, this is a very sound argument in terms of historical evidence. It's very hard to come away with this having read it and think anything. But yeah, this whole Second Amendment was quite literally the compromise to get everybody on board with something that people didn't want because they didn't want yes. to to give freedom to to Black Americans, right?
2: Yes, thank you. Thank you it and thank I mean, you, no,
1: no, this is thank you for this, yeah
2: <laughs> well, you know, and it was, like I said, I started this because of the the killing of Philando Castillo, um asking that question, and as a historian, um, I went back to the past and just started going through how did we get here, um which is you know, the historian's question, how did we get here and and what I saw was. This predominant fear of black people, Uh, the the language of, uh, you know, one person after uh, Gabriel's revolt in Virginia said, if we are going to to keep um, the the, basically the beast of slavery, then we have got to keep a ferocious monster in chains. Um, Wow. Wow.
1: Yeah, you have another, another one from um uh, it's, it's like a southern delegate, uh, Rufus King, Massachusetts, oh, no, sorry, that's the South, Massachusetts, uh, label so labeling the three-fifths clause, quote, one of the constitution's greatest blemishes, admitting that the horrific concession to the slaveholders, quote, was a necessary sacrifice to the so quite literally, black Americans are the sacrifice to the Constitution. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that I mean, seeing
2: how and, they, and the thing is, is that they knew it when they were doing right. it. Yeah. They knew it. Um, and, and, and as I said, it's one of the, the through lines in, in, in this work is the predominance of protecting uh, white supremacy at the cost of African-American citizenship rights, at the cost of the United States, at the cost of the language and the viability of democracy. Mm -hmm. Um that is to me one of the through lines in this. Um, you know, it 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 is Madison saying, Yes, you know, we we we've got to do the have the 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 extension of the the Atlantic slave trade because if we don't, we won't have a United States of America. Wow. (laughs) Yes. So it's that kind of of recognition of the, 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 the larger sacrifice that African-Americans have made for this nation. Um, and when you think about it, too, in that war for independence, you had African-Americans fully engaged in the battle. Mm-hmm. And that just got erased. Uh, In terms of the narratives that we tell about American history, the narratives of um, the Minutemen who who are these these white guys fighting, you know, so it's solely whites who fought for independence. It's solely whites who 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 took on the king's forces. It's solely whites who who had this vision of liberty and knew what freedom was. So when you have that narrative, it then allows for this kind of truncation of access to rights, access to resources, because it's like, well, who did this? Who built this? Who did this work? And it's part of the battles that we're having right now in American society over history. And one of the things that that I want to do with the second is for us to have A very different conversation, um, a historically based conversation that recognizes the language that we use um, in order to include or exclude and what that means in terms of the ways that we then are able to live our lives through policy. And and so I said, like what I said with the Second Amendment, I looked at the ways that African Americans had or did not have. Access to the right to bear arms, access to the right to self-defense, and access to the right to a well-regulated militia, and I tracked this over time from the 17th century all the way up into the 21st. So, as you know, the book ends with Kyle Rittenhouse and Mm -hmm. Breonna Taylor, right? And so, seeing how in these instances, how does this Work, And the answer is, it doesn't. African Americans' access to those rights is so conditional. It is conditional upon the acceptance of whites. So that's why I have in there that battle at Christiana. And that happened in 1851 in Pennsylvania. And this was right after you get the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 that Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was just detested by many in the North. Because prior to that time, the North had basically unwilling to participate in the capturing of runaway slaves. In fact, they were sometimes charging slave catchers with kidnapping. And so what the Fugitive Slave Act did was to make the North Fully complicit um, by saying that they would have to provide personnel, they would have to provide funding, and if they refused, they were going to have to reimburse the the enslaver. Wow! And mm-hmm. <laughs> and so in Christiana, after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act, a Maryland plantation owner named Edward Gorsuch came up to Pennsylvania to capture two or three of the men who had fled from his uh, wheat farm, his wheat plantation. And Gorsuch has a U.S. Marshal with him. He has his son and he has his nephew. And he's got all of the swag that the Fugitive Slave Act brings, right? And he strolls up to William Parker's house. And William Parker himself is a fugitive slave. But in Christiana, they had developed a self-defense community. And Gorsuch comes to the door, and he's like, "I've come to get my property." And Parker's like, "There is nothing that you own that is here. That is that chair yours? No. Um, mm-hmm. Is that stove yours? No." And so then the U.S. Marshal's like, "And I'm a U.S. Marshal," and Parker's like, "I don't care what you are. You're not coming up in my house." <laughs> and Gorsuch is mm-hmm. like, "I have come to get my property. I'm coming up those stairs," and Parker was like. I'm going to tell you what, old man, you may come up up those stairs, but once you're there, you're mine. That kind of defiance was just startling. And and so Parker's wife, Eliza, could see that it is getting tense out there. And so she starts ringing the alarm bell. Two of Gorsuch's folks in his posse climb the tree and start shooting at Eliza through the window as she's ringing this alarm bell, she ducks down, continuing to ring. The, the self-defense group just gathers and they're carrying everything, carrying old pistols, they're carrying farm implements, and they start defending and attacking the, the slave catchers. Gorsuch ends up dead. The marshal ends up running away. There is a trial afterwards, and that trial is for treason. Think about that. Treason. To defy the Fugitive Slave Act is an act of treason. And the prosecutor is laying it out. The instructions from the judge, to the jury, however, were that, yeah, these slave catchers have been, these kidnappers have been terrorizing Black people. They have the right to self-defense. Mm. Um, And that's what this is. And so no one was found guilty of treason, nor were were there any trials for Edward Gorsuch's death. And so it looks like, oh, Black people have the right to self-defense. But what Mm -hmm. we're seeing here is a larger issue of how the Fugitive Slave Act was so vilified that whites were comfortable with Black people defending themselves. Mm -hmm. That was not always the case. I mean, it's what, you know, Derek Bell calls that interest convergence, where Black people defending themselves from being kidnapped and sent back into slavery, and sometimes free Blacks were were kidnapped and sent into slavery. Um, And the North, for not wanting to be complicit in slavery, because we had lots of sectional tensions at that time. Um, and so it was that interest convergence that said, yes, Black people have the right to self-defense in this case.
1: Yeah. And interest convergence, that's a great... I don't, I don't remember that specifically, but I'm writing it down because I'm definitely using it. Um, I don't remember it specifically in the book, but that's another through line because over and again, the only time you see the Second Amendment being a, a universal amendment, which is rare, but the only time you see it is when. Interests, right? When there's a common enemy, as you say, or when, like you said, just public opinion turns in such a drastic way that that it just it's kind of like there's like a little like blip in racism, almost, you know, <laughs> that that allows for certain things to happen, but it doesn't become. I mean, it's almost like the exception that proves the rule, right? Exactly, exactly. So you know, you think about the Civil War,
2: right? With the Civil War, you had initially blacks were forbidden from joining the Union Army. Um, It wasn't until there were so many uh, debacles from the Northern armies and and from pressure from Black folks saying, we will fight for our freedom, that in fact began to open up the Union army to Black people to the point where Blacks were 10% of the Union army. And there were 40,000 black people, black soldiers killed during that war. But what we saw after the Civil War, after this fight to save the United States of America, where black people were like, let us fight for this nation. Let us fight for this freedom. Afterwards, you get Andrew Johnson, who basically provides amnesty to the Confederate leaders and allows them to gain control of the government again, and they institute the Black Codes. And one of the key elements in the Black mm-hmm. Codes was disarmament, um, that, that Black people should not have guns. We aren't safe when Black people have guns. And the anger that there were Black troops that were part of the occupying forces in the South was palpable. The complaints up to Andrew Johnson about these black soldiers, um, and and it was this fear that you know they're only going to be here to to wipe out all of the white people, to kill all of the whites, um, and no, they're they're there to bring about some level of peace and to keep whites from killing the newly emancipated folk. But that's, so what you saw then was Andrew Johnson then having black soldiers removed as part of the occupying forces in the South because there was not interest convergence there. Um, and, And that's what we're talking about here is that when the nation needs black soldiers to fight, when there's like no other option, then boom, there. But afterwards, let's get the guns away from them. Because, again, because mm-hmm. of the power of anti-blackness, the power of that language, like that language of, 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 of criminals, that language of violence, inherently violent that language of being a ferocious monster um, instead of being human
1: beings who value freedom. Wow. Right. Yeah. And as you move into the present of the book, so what sort of happens, and you don't say this explicitly, but which is probably just because you're such a good writer, but it's like you move through all of this quote unquote history because this is always you know tricky because really by the end of the book, you realize that 1776 and six, 1967, are <laughs> we're looking at the same thing.
2: Yes. Thank you.
1: And So by the time we get into the
2: 1960s, what we see is that despite the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and despite the Voting Rights Act of 1965, African-American citizenship is still very tenuous. And one of the ways you see that is in California with the Black Panthers, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. The Black Panthers arose out as a response to the massive police violence that was raining down on the black community. And the Panthers decided what they would do would be to follow the law, the California law, and police the police. So they open carried their weapons, standing the, the, the legally amount, uh, the legally measured, uh, standing the legal distance away from the police as the police were making their arrests but the police did not like to see these Panthers. Uh, the police were just horrified uh, that, that you would have this group of black people who believed that the police needed policing. And so they went, the Oakland Police Department, went to a, a Assemblyman Don Mulford and said, we need a law that can put the Panthers in check. And that law became the Mulford Act. And so here you have um, black folks legally carrying weapons and a law written by a conservative assemblyman with the help of a representative from the NRA and backed fully by Governor Ronald Reagan to create a gun control law that would stop the, the methods that the Black Panthers used in order to police the police. That fear of Black people was part and parcel of this, part and parcel of this moment. It was a time where you also had then the Gun Control Act of 1968, and what the Gun Control Act of 1968 did was to look at the the types of weapons, particularly these Saturday night specials, these cheap guns, and to say... They're, they're illegal. Now, and this is where the conflict comes in. Because on one hand, you get the NAACP suing gun manufacturers for flooding the black community with these cheap weapons, basically making black life precarious. On the other hand, you get CORE, another civil rights organization, suing the government for banning the kinds of weapons that Black folks carry that helps them have the right to self-defense. This is the conundrum of the Second Amendment. Black precarity, the how Black life is seen as dangerous and as a threat and not able to be defensed, even by self-defense. And where you also then get the, the, the difference in the ways that guns are seen, and not even guns are seen, that the people who carry guns are seen, um, I think is really just embodied in the story of Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse, a 17-year-old white boy who crossed state lines to go into Kenosha, Wisconsin, carrying an illegally acquired rifle and because there was a protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, because police had shot Jacob Blake in the back seven times. And this was part of this larger protest uh, movement that was happening in the US based on George Floyd's killing, the killing of Breonna Taylor, the killing of Ahmaud Arbery. It was just enough already. And, and so in these, this protest, Kyle Rittenhouse comes across state lines to to and the police see this white kid carrying this rifle and they welcome him. They say we really appreciate you guys being here. They offer him water on a summer day and or on a summer night. And and Rittenhouse shoots down three people, killing two of them and severely wounding the third. After the killings, he's walking towards police with his hands up as if to surrender, and the police go right by him. They don't see Kyle Rittenhouse as a threat. And he goes home and he is eventually arrested at home <laughs> across state lines. So the thing of, of of this threat, and I juxtapose this to Tamir Rice. Tamir Rice was a 12-year-old playing with a toy gun in a park by himself in Cleveland, Ohio. And the police roll up on him, and within two seconds, they shoot him. They said he was a threat. So how is a child who is playing with a toy gun, and granted, the toy gun didn't have the tip on it, to say, hey, I'm a toy Colt 45, but he was by himself in a park. So he wasn't a threat to anyone. And he is gunned down within two seconds. Kyle Rittenhouse is in a a movement, a protest where there are tons of people. He's carrying a rifle and he's not a threat. That is the difference in the way that the second amendment operates. You see it just actualized right there. And the fact then that you have the right wing in American politics embracing Kyle Rittenhouse. His defense attorney said, you know, he was merely exercising his Second Amendment right to a well-regulated militia. Wow. You have over a million dollars being poured into his defense fund, his bail fund. You have him being held up as this avatar of Defending against these angry black people. So in Rittenhouse, we see the embodiment of the Second Amendment. We see the embodiment of the the threat of black people. And we see the embodiment of how whites with guns are not the threat. Blacks with guns and blacks without guns are the threat. That is the through line. From the 17th century America to the 21st century America, and it is what leads to the fractured citizenship of Amer- of African Americans.
1: Yeah, uh, there's uh, my godchild who is biracial in Georgia. His, um, one of the women on his school board um, has been ad- was advocating vor- voraciously for Kyle Rittenhouse's defense fund and. We tried to get her removed because there's no, there's no way she can educate children of color. I just don't believe, right? Because they are dangers to to her and the threats to white safety, and it was she couldn't be removed because it's you know private Facebook stuff. But I mean that I, when I was reading your book, I I recalled how how much people defended him as some kind of fighter for justice and like law and order, and it was I mean the the racial overtones of that were so obvious. And yet it feels, I don't know if it's on purpose or like they, 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 that's actually what they mean, or people just can't see it. But I'm encouraged by a lot of the defunding the police movements and how much people are starting to realize that you cannot have an asymmetrical arming of police and civilians this way, because so much of that violence gets directed toward people of color, like disproportionately at astronomical numbers.
2: And, and when, when I think about, um, I also think about the way that George Zimmerman was embraced by the right That and the thugification of Trayvon Martin. So Trayvon, 17-year-old, um, just going to a convenience store to get Skittles and iced tea during the NBA All-Star game break. And he is spotted by George Zimmerman. Um, who is, is, is calls in because this guy is suspicious. What would make a child suspicious except that he's black? Um, and Zimmerman gets out of his, his, his SUV with a loaded nine millimeter to stalk this child through this community. And, and what we know is that Trayvon ended up with a bullet in his chest. And that Zimmerman hollered self-defense as if Trayvon did not have the right to self-defense when a grown man with a loaded weapon is following him, tracking him, stalking him through a neighborhood. Yet the Uh narrative that we got was that Trayvon was this big, black thug who threatened this poor, defenseless man who was overweight and just could not, you know, match up against the athleticism of this black thug. (sighs) Black threat means that you don't have the right to self-defense. And we know that Zimmerman walked. This is how the Second Amendment works.
1: Yeah. And even when people point to um, convictions, uh, you know, Dylan Roof, uh, Derek Chauvin, they're so egregious that you can hardly even call them victories for a more equalized argument, because the, the white threat has to be so incredibly aggravated to be seen as a threat, right, compared to the non-existence of threat in, in the black people that are murdered. Yes,
2: and I mean, and so you think about Dylan Roof. Mm-hmm. Dylan Roof goes to a uh, Mother AME Church. And he guns down nine black people during Bible study. Lord, he is taken alive. This man who has gunned down nine people in Bible study is taken alive and they recognize Dylan Roof's humanity by asking him if he's hungry. That was an option not available to John Crawford at, in Walmart near Dayton, Ohio. That was not an option to, to Breonna Taylor. That was not an option to God, Terrence Crutcher or Walter mm-hmm. Scott. Dan- Daniel Prude, he was killed in Rochester in a
1: similar manner as George Floyd. Yes, mm-hmm.
2: exactly. So the, the sense of blackness as threat, the default threat in American society, is what is so toxic and lethal to, to black life in the United States.
1: Well, and that's what's so important about the book. I mean, I I, I recommended t- this to a couple people and they said, well, I don't really want a book about guns. I said, it's not a book about guns. I said, it's a constitutional history. I said, it's, it's a correcting constitutional history. So anybody who's reading biographies of the founding fathers, who's reading, you know, any of that stuff, this book has to be on the shelf next to it. It ought to be required reading in American history. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Well, Thank you for all the work you did. Do you want to leave the? I mean, it's such a powerful book. I can't. I mean, people really need to, to read it. Uh, do you want to leave the audience with any takeaways or projects you're working on, or or ways they can stay in touch with you and follow your work and the and the arguments of the second? Uh, yes. So um, my my Twitter
2: is at Prof C Anderson, and and I post things regularly there. And I've got a a book tour that is going on and. The schedule is, I believe, posted on
1: Bloomsbury's website, I think. (laughs) It's been a pleasure, Carol. And the book, I mean, although not, you know, fun to read, (laughs) was incredibly informative, powerful. I mean, I really appreciate you doing all of that work and all the work that you've done over the last couple of years um, with your op-eds and other things to keep us all thinking about things from a perspective that often gets literally whitewashed in some of the media outlets, I think that many of us are consuming. And, you know, of course, like education where th- this part of history is not taught.
2: Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really think that one of the battles that we're dealing with right now, as we have this clash, be- as we have these states banning the, the teaching of critical race theory, the, mm-hmm. the banning yeah. of the 1619 project, is to maintain a narrative of, of, of American exceptionalism, that is, white men built this. White men, therefore, deserve all of the resources of this nation. Um, and that this is um, the, the, the penultimate democracy. When we actually, when we look at what happened, it is a democracy that is so fractured and flawed because of the racism and because of the attendant sexism that right. we have to know the
1: truth in order to correct the flaws. Yes, absolutely. And um, you know, and Carol, by the way, for those of you listening, Dr. Anderson has written several books um, in similar veins of teaching people the truth. So certainly after you read The Second, you'll want to check out the rest of the books. But for now, we do want to thank um, Dr. Ar- Anderson for being here. We've been talking about her latest book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. We'd also like to thank Bloomsbury Publishing, Without publishing houses like Bloomsbury, this kind of work, New Books Network, it would be very hard to run uh, as a nonprofit volunteer organization. So please head over to the Bloomsbury's website and check out the book. If you're not interested in a copy for yourself, uh, do consider the history buffs in your life because, as I mentioned, this is definitely a U.S. history book uh, before it's a book about quote-unquote book about guns. And if not, this is exactly the kind of book that your local library would love to keep on the shelves for people to read. So consider buying a hard copy to donate, something that's very nice to do with public budgets being what they are right now. Uh, But if that's not in your means, you can also reach out to the public library, your university libraries, and request that they pick up a copy of Carol Anderson's The Second Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America from Bloomsbury. With that, Dr. Anderson, thank you again. It's been a pleasure. It's been wonderful, Lee. Thank you. Yes. And for everyone at home, if you haven't been vaccinated, please consider getting vaccinated and stay tuned for more books coming soon from New Books Network. Goodbye.